listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. If you would, stand for the reading of the word. This morning we are in Galatians chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you to the grace of Christ, to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach another gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any gospel to you, then what I have, you have received, let him be accursed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It's almost impossible to tell a complete story, you know, with a beginning, a middle, and an ending with just a few words, but entries in the six-word short story contest uh, try to do just that, tell a full story with only six words. Some of the classic entries are stories like this. Axe falls, the rooster crows. Wait! I thought that one was pretty funny. First hour did not laugh either. Um, Okay, how about this one? (laughs) Living the dream. Please send money. Yeah? Or some of you have lived this one. Mom just revoked my creative license. Yeah? Uh, Or how about selling parachute, never opened, slightly stained. Yeah, see, each of these stories has a, has a, I mean, a complete, it's, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. It's a complete story. And those are somewhat humorous, but of course, some of the entries in this contest pack a little bit more of an emotional punch in just six words, like this one. Goodbye, mission control. Thanks for trying. I know, right? Or how about this one? We're the family everyone gossips about. Yeah, and the reason those stories work and they get a slightly different reaction out of us is that implied in those stories is a whole bunch of context, a whole bunch of of history. You hear it and you're like, okay, I know what sort of situation that story is describing. But if if you miss the context, if you miss the implied narrator of the story, then the story changes its meaning. It it doesn't pack quite the same punch. Take, Take this story. Without thinking, I made two cups. If that's a story about a barista, it's not much of a story. But if that's the story being told by someone with a lifelong habit of getting up in the morning and making two cups of coffee or two cups of tea, one for himself and one for his wife of 55 years, 
and without thinking, he got up and made two cups. It means something different. So we have to know the context around these short stories in order for them to pack that kind of emotional punch or for them to affect us in the way the stories are intended to affect us. Now, I bring up those stories because we're beginning a new study through the book of Galatians, a study we're calling Galatians, No Other Gospel. If you haven't grabbed one of these journals from the Welcome Center downstairs, grab one afterwards and you can get all of your scripture notes, all of your notes on the sermons in one place. Uh, This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to explain to the churches in Galatia all of the meaning and context and implications behind the greatest short story ever written. Jesus has come to rescue you. Jesus has come to rescue you. It's the greatest short story ever written, but it's one that if we don't grasp the context and the bigger historical narrative around it, well, then the story means something very different than what it means when Paul writes about it. So, join me in Galatians. I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, right at the beginning here, uh, to, to walk, begin walking us through this letter, this letter in which Paul challenges these churches in Galatia and saying, look, here's the story. Don't miss the context. Don't miss what's happening around it or you're going to apply it in wrong ways or you're going to go look for the fulfillment in other places in other ways. The greatest short story ever written is explained in the letter to the Galatians. All right, so 1-1. It's on page 1 of your scripture journal. Paul, an apostle. So he starts the letter like he starts all of his letters. He introduces himself. Hi, I'm Paul, an apostle. And then he includes the people who are with him and all the brothers, verse 2, all the brothers who are with me. And he addresses it to the people, reading it to the churches of Galatia. It's the kind of letter that was meant to be circled around from different churches. Each church makes a copy of it and then can keep it and share it. Uh, And then he he usually has some words, some sort of salutation of like grace and peace, and then he goes on to express something that he's thankful for, for that church, something about their faith or their conduct or their way of life. Wait, actually, no, he doesn't do that last one in this letter. This is the only letter, actually, where Paul does not have anything nice to say about the churches he's writing to. He doesn't say, I'm so impressed when I hear of your faith or anything like that. Instead, in verse 6, he goes right into, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He describes his state of mind here. I am astonished. This is the only letter in which he expresses this particular emotion. He's saying, I cannot believe what I am hearing is coming out of your church and the churches in this area. Now, as near as we can tell, uh, Paul had only just finished his first missionary journey. It was a fairly short one where he basically sailed west across the Mediterranean, made land, well, Cyprus, made landfall up, went over into Galatia, planted a couple churches in southern Galatia, and then retraced his steps all the way back to Antioch. And by the time he got back to Antioch, messengers from that church in Galatia had beaten him back to Antioch, and they're there. Paul gets back, and they're like, yeah, those churches you planted up in Galatia, they're already adding on to your gospel, and they're adding on to what you preached, and they're, they're going in a different direction. 
So when Paul says, I'm, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting, he's like, I literally just left. Right? It's like when you drive away from the house leaving your kids with a babysitter and you can already see flames in the background. You're like, I literally just left. How did you start the house on fire already, right? That's, that's how he's feeling. It's like, I was just there. And you're deserting the gospel. Now, Paul is not saying, and he's going to go on to argue this, he's not saying like, okay, you've, you're looking for a different way of thinking about what it takes for you to get to heaven. He's saying, no, you have deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ. You've deserted God by so quickly running to another gospel, as if there is another gospel. He says, no, there's not. You've so quickly gone looking for or some other good news. You're adding on to the good news that I preached to you that you're abandoning God in the process because there is no other gospel. There is no other good news he goes on to argue in verse 7, 8, 9, like, even if I came and preached a different message or an angel came and preached a different message, they should be cursed because there is no other good news than what I preach to you. There is no other gospel. You can't give up on it. Now, when he makes this claim, you've walked away from the gospel my first thought is, Paul, what exactly do you mean by the gospel? So we're going to spend the rest of the morning answering that question uh, because we're starting uh, the first of 18 sermons going through the like 12 pages that this letter takes up. And if we don't get ourselves straight on what is the gospel that Paul's accusing them of abandoning, well, then we're not going to understand the rest of the letter. Now, I know that sounds like a Sunday school question. Okay, kids, what's the gospel? Um, but I've done enough baptism interviews to know that we're generally pretty fuzzy on this one. <laughs> and it's worth the time to dial in on exactly what Paul means when he says you've abandoned the gospel. So, let's ask the question, what is it? And, and answer it. If you are taking notes on here or in your Bible or in your, note, your notepad, whatever you do, I just want you to write this down. The gospel is, and leave some room because we're going to fill in this definition as we go. All right, you ready? Let me start with the word gospel itself. How many of you already know the gospel is a combination of two old English words meaning good news? Great. Sunday school works. It is a translation, gospel is a, a direct translation of the Greek word euangelion or evangelion or evangelical that literally means good news, good message. So the gospel is good news. That's the first thing to write down as we fill out this definition. The gospel is good news. And in fact, if you are the kind of person who writes in your Bible, I'd suggest pull out, pulling out a pen and where you see the word gospel, just put a line through it and write good news. Okay, you're not changing the meaning, I promise. You're, you're just making it not quite as familiar to what you're used to hearing. I'm astonished you so quickly deserted him. You're turning to a different good news? Right? Okay, so make some notes there. The gospel is good news, but that leads us to ask some questions. Good news about what? Good news for who? Whom? Good news for whom? Who? 
Which one is it? Thank you. I couldn't tell what you said. Good news for which of us? Again, great questions. Let's answer them. Back up to verse 3. Verse 3, Paul gives his normal, uh, his normal blessing, grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, and then he gives us a summary statement of the gospel, of the gospel that he's accusing this church of walking away from. And the very first thing for you to notice is that the gospel is about Jesus. It's actually not about us. The gospel is about Jesus, the Lord Jesus. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you already know that Christ is not Jesus' last name? Okay, good. We often say those two words together so much, Jesus Christ, that we just think of Christ as another name. Christ is not a name. It's a title. It's a Greek word meaning the anointed one, the chosen one. It is a direct Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which also means anointed one or chosen one. So when Paul says Jesus Christ, he's saying Jesus the Messiah. So if you have your pen, maybe circle Christ and just write the Messiah. Every time you see the word Christ, write the Messiah. Just to kind of jolt your mind a little bit to be like, oh yeah, we're talking about the Messiah. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, but what's a Messiah? Another great question. Let me tell you a story. Way back in the beginning of everything, there was nothing except God. But God wanted to share His love instead of just sharing it or in addition to just sharing it within himself and the three persons of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God wanted to share his love with free creatures, people that he created in order to be in a love relationship with them. So God created the world and created us, human beings, to freely love him, human beings that he could freely love. And in the beginning, when God created heaven and earth, heaven and earth were joined. They were one. And God dwelt with his creation, with human beings in the garden on earth. And they had one job, to spread the kingdom of God around the whole of the earth, to take what began in the garden and push the borders until it encompassed the entirety of the earth. And then the entirety of God's creation would be the union of heaven and earth, God dwelling with everything that he had created. But those human beings decided instead of working with God, they would rather work for themselves and build their own little kingdom. And that moment of sort of self-direction, self-decision immediately fractured the world. That was not loud enough to be effective. Humanity's relationship with God was ripped apart and heaven and earth were separated. Not the way God intended for it to be. Heaven and earth are supposed to be united in one, God dwelling with his people, but they've been ripped apart, and it was about as destructive as you extracting all the sugar from an already baked cake. You ruin the cake in the process. 
And now God cannot dwell with his people. He cannot reunite heaven and earth without somehow first pushing out of earth all of the sin and the death and the disease and the destruction that has come from humanity's desire to build their own kingdom. He has to push that death and sin and destruction out of humanity and out of the world so that heaven and earth can be reunited again. So God launched a plan to begin to bring heaven back to earth. I'm fast-forwarding a little bit, but in the course of this plan, he chose one person. His name was Abraham. He said, Abraham, I want you to come out of the world where you were, and I want you to live fully for me, and I will bless your family such that it becomes so large it becomes its own country, and through your family, I am going to finally push all of the sin and death out of this world, even if it costs me everything. I'm going to bring heaven back to earth. And Abraham's family grew, and one member of his family, a guy named Moses, was given a law, a law that showed, like, hey, here's, here's what people would look like if they lived as if heaven and earth were reunited. And that law also gave them rituals, and it gave them routines, and it gave them this place called the temple. And the temple was the one place where God had pushed heaven back into earth, one room called the Holy of Holies, and in that room, once a year, a priest could, after he had cleansed himself from sin and death by the, the sacrificial death of an animal, he could go into that place where heaven and earth were reunited, and he could come back out with forgiveness for the whole family of Abraham. But he had to do it every year, again and again and again. So that family of Abraham started looking forward to a day in the future when someone would call, someone God had chosen, someone God had anointed, someone they called the Messiah, would come, and somehow, they were a little fuzzy on the details, like maybe it involves sacrifice, maybe it involves God himself coming, we're not really sure, but this Messiah is going to come, and he's going to fully push sin and death and disease and destruction out of God's people so that heaven can come back down to earth and God can rule and reign the entirety of his creation again as he intended from the beginning. And then God did exactly what he promised in a completely unexpected way. God himself came in the person of Jesus to die in order to pull all of the death out of the world and onto himself and to take sin, our, our sin on himself in order to pull it off of us and make each of us individually clean enough that God could dwell in us. Little tabernacles, little places where heaven and earth have begun to be reunited. So when Paul calls Jesus the Messiah, he's saying, I'm talking about that story. All of that context that we call the Old Testament. That one word, that one title, Messiah, is implied and assumed all of that. That whole story. So Paul can just say, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who gave himself, this is verse 4, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So already in this short summary of the gospel, you, you see why Jesus came, what he delivered us from, but also what he is delivering us to. See, there's more to the gospel than just cleaning you up 
There's a whole lot more to the gospel than just cleaning you up. There's this other part of cleaning you up to do what? To, to be delivered to what? So Paul says that the good news, the, the gospel, is that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, the one that's been waiting for, that the, the nation has been waiting for, and by his death and resurrection is beginning to push the sin and death in his people and in his world out so that heaven can come back down and be reunited with earth. So it's all right there in verse 4, gave himself for our sins. Now, sins is one of those churchy words that sometimes we stumble upon of like, oh, you know, what, is it, what does that really mean? In this context, because it's in the whole big story, that this context, the sin that he's talking about is the biggest problem we face, our alienation from God. Remember at the beginning of the story when the first two humans decided we're going to build our own kingdom and immediately ripped their relationship with God apart. That's the big problem out of which all other problems come. See, our, we face other smaller problems like our alienation from one another as we exploit and take advantage of one another, as we use each other to make ourselves feel better, as we shift blame onto other people, as we oppress others and are oppressed by others, that's all ways in which we are broken socially. But that's not the big problem. We're also alienated from the world around us. We, we suffer, we experience pain, our bodies break down and degenerate. Eventually, we all experience death. We are alienated from the world around us. Us and the world does not seem, I mean, the physical creation, it doesn't seem to work the way it's supposed to. That's, you know, physical alienation. And it's a problem, but it's not the biggest problem. Of course, we face internal alienation as well. We are at war with ourselves. Our desires are at war with themselves when we both very much want and very much do not want the exact same thing. Or when we experience shame at what we've done that we know doesn't live up to the standards we hold ourselves to. Or fear that if others see who we really are, they'll reject us, they'll walk away. We are at war with ourselves, but that's not our biggest problem. Those are all symptoms of the biggest problem that we are alienated from God. The relationship between us and God has been ripped apart until Jesus gave himself for our sins, for our alienation from God. And in his sacrifice on the cross and our reception of that gift through faith, our relationship with God is restored, repaired, redeemed, and a whole lot of other words we use to describe it. And now, now that through Jesus, the controlling power of sin and death in our lives has been pushed out of us, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, just like in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So we are where heaven and earth collide, and like, like lights in a darkened city, as individual after individual after individual comes to God through faith in Christ, like a little bit of light is turned on. A little bit of light shines out. And when those lights come together and begin to form a church or a gathering of some sort, 
those lights magnify and intensify, and they make the good news apparent and appealing. Not because they're living into some new moral law or way of living, but because they are learning to become citizens of a future kingdom, of an age to come. That's in verse 4 as well. When Paul says the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins, he doesn't stop the sentence there. Gave himself for our sins in order to, there's a goal here, there's something we're shooting for, in order to deliver us from the present evil age. From this current time period we're living in, in which evil reigns, we have been decisively delivered from that present evil age. And though we're living within it, we're not living as citizens of that age, we're living as citizens of the kingdom to come, as children of the family of God, as children in the kingdom from the future that is becoming instantiated now in us, individually and as a whole. In Colossians, Paul talks about the same thing, but he says, you have, you have immigrated from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You've got a new citizenship, this kingdom that is coming, heaven that is coming back down to earth. So we, we turn up the light in the world around us to the extent that we, we learn how to live as citizens of that kingdom to come, as citizens of heaven, now, here, as heaven and earth meet in us. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Israel's Messiah, we know him by the name Jesus, that Israel's Messiah has come, and it's right there in verse 4, given himself to rescue sinners into a restored relationship with God. The gospel is the good news that Israel's Messiah, Jesus, has come and given himself to rescue sinners into a restored relationship with God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. If I had to put it in a six-word short story format, it would just be this. Jesus has come to rescue you. The most incredible six-word story ever written. But the story is incomplete, or at the very least, easy to get confused if we don't read it along with the implied context of everything, you know, the history that, that is around it and within it, and the story that continues, that follows after it, because the story isn't about just Jesus' rescue of you. It continues. When you respond to the good news through faith, faith is just believing that the news is true and trusting that it applies to you. So when you respond in faith and you are, you are cleansed because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, well, then that's when God makes a commitment to you to live and dwell in you, to empower you to live as the citizen of the kingdom that is coming, the citizen of heaven, the citizen of heaven reunited with earth. So you can see why Paul's astonished, right? Because he's not writing them to them and saying, I'm astounded that you are so quickly attempting to earn favor with God by adding something onto your justification by faith 
alone. He's saying, I'm astounded that you are abandoning the entirety of this whole storyline in which you were raised in order to say, there must be some other good news somewhere else. I'm astounded that you're so quickly running away from the one who called you in the grace of the Messiah and are turning to a different good news. There is no other good news. He says, you've heard the story. You know the background. You know there's no other way this plays out other than in Jesus, whom I've preached to you. That's the good news. Why are you trading that for something else? Now, the question that comes to mind for me in just a few minutes here as we wrap this up is, okay, if, if a church full of people who heard the gospel directly from the Apostle Paul could run away from it, what are the odds that there's ways we've deserted the gospel? Probably better than none. Uh, I, so I was thinking about, okay, wh what are the different ways that we add to the gospel or we take away from it or we try to expand it or we try to restrict it uh, in order to turn it into something else? And there are a lot of different things we could talk about here, but I want to talk about just two ideas, two temptations, equal and opposite temptations to abandon the gospel that we face. First is sometimes... We make the gospel too small. In an effort to be theologically precise and to focus in on the core crux of the gospel, I choose that word specifically because crux means cross, we focus on only the cross and what happened there. We focus on only the cross and ignore the implications we forget the story in which the cross finds itself and finds its meaning. We forget what comes before and what comes after. When we focus so much on the cross that we forget the implications, we tend to say things like, Jesus died so you can go to heaven. When Jesus didn't die so you can go to heaven. Jesus died so that heaven could come back to earth. Jesus died so that God could bring heaven and earth back together in the way he intended. Jesus died in order to, I'm going to steal this line from someone else, Jesus died in order to push the hell out of you and out of this world so that heaven could come back and be reunited with earth. That's the whole story of the Bible. But when we focus in on just the cross and we forget the rest of the story around it, we forget that there's something that comes after gave himself for our sins. In fact, if you have a pen, circle the little word to in verse 4. The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. When we focus down on just the very center, we forget all the implications of the gospel, of living into this new gospel citizenship, living into the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven, living as a child of God. We wonder sometimes why the church doesn't seem to be able to make much of a difference in the world, and maybe it's because we focus so much on getting people saved that we forget about the part of the gospel that is inviting them into this new gospel-shaped, heaven-shaped, like Messiah-shaped community and living as little beacons of the kingdom to come. So we have to beware to 
We have to keep from focusing so much on the cross, which is absolutely vital, but if we focus only there and miss the rest of the story, then we've begun to abandon the whole full gospel. But of course, the equal and opposite temptation that we sometimes face is to focus so much on the whole story that we forget the cross. We forget the transformative moment of our encounter, individual encounter with Jesus and his sacrifice for us on the cross. I mean, we are kingdom-shaped people. We're trying to build communities of grace and peace, and we are naturally drawn to shaping the communities around us in the ways of God's grace and peace, right? So we get involved in doing all sorts of things like caring for neighbors in pain, teaching English to refugees, advocating on behalf of the poor and the press, standing up for and legislating for the unborn, caring for those in prison and in the hospitals. We build orphanages, we build hospitals, we build, uh, we build community centers, we oppose unjust violence. We do all of these things because in the kingdom to come, none of these things will exist. But it... It becomes easy in our advocacy and in our work to better the world around us, what we are absolutely called to do, it becomes easy to focus so exclusively on that work that we forget why we're doing it or we forget to call people into the transforming work of Jesus in their lives. So we have to do both. We, we focus in on the gospel or on the, on the cross at the center of the gospel because it is there that we discover who we are as, sorry to be mean, but as worthless sinners deserving nothing. We're humbled by God's love for us anyway, and then that love flows out through us into the world around us, calling others into that inward experience of, I too am a sinner who deserves nothing, but God has been gracious to me anyway. And it continues to work in that cycle, sometimes bottom-up, sometimes top-down, but we include both the whole story and the cross at the center of it, not focusing too much on one that we neglect the other. Sometimes when we focus too much on just that big story, then we, we start saying things like, well, if, if he or she were a real Christian, they'd be involved with me in this work that I'm doing over here. If that person really understood the gospel, then they would, they'd be working out in exactly these three, four, five ways. Forgetting that we're all broken in like a billion different ways. And all of it needs redemptive work. So the temptation to focus in on just one area is if social alienation is the only issue and then we focus exclusively on justice advocacy and care for the oppressed and marginalized, which is absolutely vital, but not the whole story. Or, or we talk about how we're, we're alienated from the world and so we focus in on, on healthcare research or environmentalism or the ways that we can make the world more like it was in the beginning and that's absolutely vital, but not the whole story. Or we focus in on our own self-alienation from ourselves and we become like self-actualization gurus in Jesus' name, which is absolutely vital, but not the whole story. We focus on the cross and the transformation of our relationship with God and the whole story of how it works out through us as citizens of the kingdom to come, of heaven and earth reunited in the world around us, the world that is still in thrall to the present evil age. 
That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Israel's Messiah, Jesus, has come and given himself to rescue sinners and rescue them into a restored relationship with God. Everything else is details. Everything else is the working out of that story, of the greatest short story ever ever told, that Jesus has come to rescue you. Jesus has come to rescue you. Now, this week, at at the beginning of this sermon series, I know I've primarily spoken to people who already believe the gospel, who say, yes, I I believe that. I want to learn to live that out. So I want to pause for a moment and, and speak to those of you who don't believe the gospel or who are not sure that this is what you believe. Because if you think that Christianity is all about what you have to do to get to heaven then you've gotten Christianity wrong in two very big ways. Christianity is not about what you do. It's about what God has already done for you on your behalf through Jesus. It is not at all about what you do. It's good news. It's not good advice. It's news. It's not a new way of living. There is a new way of living that comes from believing that the news is true and trusting that it applies to you, but that's an implication of the gospel. The gospel, the core message of Christianity is that there is good news Jesus died to rescue you. But Jesus didn't die to take you to heaven. He died to bring heaven back to earth, to begin that process now in each of us and in the communities that that we form as Christ followers, to take those who die now waiting for him still to return And take them to be with him, but not to be there forever, but to come back to the recreated new heavens and new earth when heaven and earth finally come back together, when God dwells with his people again in the world that he created. Christianity is the invitation into news that God has has done everything necessary to transform your relationship with him, your relationship with yourself, with the world around you, and with other people, such that you can begin now living as a citizen of the kingdom to come one day when heaven and earth are reunited, waiting now in anticipation for the king of that kingdom to come back, to set all things right, and to finally and fully push the hell out of this world so that heaven and earth are one just as it was in the beginning. That's a way better story. It's one we're all invited to accept and live into. It's the good news. Let's pray. Father, this proclamation, this announcement of news that you have done everything needed to put us right with you, with ourselves, with the world around us, and with those around us as we live as children in your family is the most life-transforming news we'll ever hear. Father, we pray that you would so shape us and shape our community by that good news, by that gospel, that 
that we can, make, we can make that message apparent and appealing to those around us, that they too may come to know you through the sacrifice of your son and be rescued into a new relationship and a new life with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.